Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we've got a live performance and conversation with one of the great punk bands of the 80s, the newly reunited Effigies. Plus, we'll review the newest album from hip-hop veteran Common. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. That is Joni Mitchell, one of the most respected songwriters in music for the last three, four decades. She has not had a new album out since 1998, but all that's going to change. She's going to follow Paul McCartney's lead and uh, put out a record on the Starbucks label in September, her first record since 1998 called Shine. So, Jim, what we're seeing here is McCartney's had some modest success with the record he put out on uh, Starbucks uh, about six weeks ago, Memory Almost Full. And Joni Mitchell, who has basically said, I loathe the music industry. She's I don't done want with it. anything to do with it. And, and, and But she has been writing songs, and I think she saw what McCartney did, uh, one of the most established uh, major label icons of the last four decades, saying he's done with the music industry as well. He's had some success with uh, Starbucks in the last six weeks, selling nearly 500,000 copies of Memory Almost Full, and now Joni Mitchell taking the leap as well. I, I'm surprised to hear you say that McCartney has, has done a bang-up uh, job with Starbucks, because if you ask me, he sold 447,000 copies of Memory Almost Full, only 45% of them at Starbucks stores. Given that he's Paul McCartney, and yeah. given the amount of hype behind that record, I would have thought it would have been much more. I haven't been able to go to a Starbucks anywhere in three states since that record came out and not hear that record. Well, you know, as a baby boomer icon, he's well known, but baby boomer icons don't sell records. Rolling Stones don't sell records. Beatles solo records don't sell records. Uh, McCartney only sold 500,000 copies of Chaos and Creation in 2005. Mm. He's almost at that level now after six weeks with memory almost full. You know, I, I think for him it was... I'm not getting anything more out of this major label system. It's not doing me any good. I might as yeah. well make a switch here. Aside from making me, you know, <laughs> more gross national income than most third world countries in my lifetime. Capital Records, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. So I'm going to go to Starbucks. He's not the only one, though. I think that this is an interesting story. Sonic Youth, the veteran avant guitar band from New York, has also made a deal with Starbucks for a compilation of their greatest hits. Hits being 
in quotation yeah. marks because Sonic Youth's never made hits. It's it's always been underground. It's called Hits Are for Squares, and uh, it's been chosen. I mean, what a pretentious concept this is, right? <laughs> Sonic Youth fans who are celebrities have each chosen one of their favorite tracks. People like Chloe Sevigny and Dave Eggers, the yeah. postmodern author. Right? I was like, oh, man. And they've each written what they like about the song. And, of course, Thurston Moore, the uh, band leader of Sonic Youth, is uh, getting some guff for this. People are calling, you know, calling it a sellout. You know, Sonic Youth in Starbucks. Here's what he had to say. I quote, In a way, Sonic Youth has a branded name. People know the name, but not necessarily our music, which might be a little bit too outsider for some. And when they do hear something, it doesn't tell the whole story. I thought it would be interesting to have a CD available in a store like Starbucks, where the casual consumer can sort of have access to our music more readily. <laughs> Sign of the times, Jimmy. Can you wow. imagine the words branding and Sonic Youth in the same sentence in, you know, 20 years ago? And here we are. I'm still choking every time I see one of those Wilco Volkswagen commercials. <laughs> I hope the ring you gave to her turns her finger green. I hope when you're in bed with her, you think of me. I would never wish bad things, but I don't wish you well. Could you tell? Greg, we have two updates on news stories we've been covering in recent weeks. The first involves this lady, Kelly Clarkson. We had some great mirth with the feud she picked with uh, her label president, the renowned record man, Clive Davis, a controversial figure known for, uh, you know, he defines being a record company executive as manipulating his artists as much as possible. Young Miss Clarkson chafed under his suggestions. She wanted to do her own thing. She wanted to be an artiste. She wanted to sing dark and, and dangerous songs. Clive, uh, publicly, at, at a uh, conference of the label people, took a shot at her and said, you know, I don't hear any hits on this. She got angrier and angrier, went back and forth. Now she's saying none of it ever happened. It was all blown out of proportion in a post on her website. Here's what uh, Clarkson has to say. There has been quite a bit of controversy surrounding the release of my December, much of which has focused on a supposed feud with my record label, in particular Clive Davis. I want to set the record straight by saying that I want my band, my advisors, those close to me, and my record label to be one big, tightly knit family. <laughs> like any family, we will disagree and argue sometimes, but in the end, it's respect and admiration that will keep us together. A lot has been made in the press about my relationship with Clive. Much of this has been blown way out of proportion and taken out of context. She loves him. She's saying she loves him. This may have nothing to do with the fact that her album, My December, is not nearly coming close to her earlier two records in terms of its sales. Uh, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that uh, she had to cancel her entire tour in support of that album. Uh, I just wonder. You know, you don't mess with Clive. It's like messing with the mob. This, you know, uh, this smacks of Kelly Clarkson firing her old manager, getting a new manager, and saying, "Listen, we got to start clean with this guy. He can Time kill to your eat career." Some dirt, lady. Exactly. Come on, me get some balls from having a champagne. You ain't no two sticker rocker like the whispers. Hit the stoplight, give it to some eyes. These rims still moving, so I'm a little spinners while I'm pumping on the beat. Dipping through the streets, pumping up a beat, and I got the heat on the 23. And I do it. Now, another fallout story, Jim. Uh, we discussed a few weeks ago what the Don Imus controversy has done to hip hop. Once again, hip hop being made a scapegoat for explicit lyrics. We have seen it now take place with the rapper Twista, who is paying the consequences for the Imus controversy. The McDonald's tour that he was a part of has canceled Twista's appearance in his hometown of Chicago, saying that, well, maybe his lyrics are a little too explicit, and those are not the kind of lyrics we want to be standing behind. Although we 
respect free speech and artistic expression. We do not condone or perpetuate derogatory language, said a McDonald's spokesman. And, and Twista, of course, uh, reacted. He was disappointed. Yeah, can't play a hometown show. And his response was, they started hearing things, feeling like they were getting a little flack, and I felt like rather than stick by me and stick through it, they got scared. I've been rapping the same way for 15 years. It only became a problem when Don Imus said something negative about black women and they needed a scapegoat. Now, Twista, by far not the most gangsterish of of hip-hop lyricists out there. I mean, there are some explicit references in his lyrics. He's got many clean songs and generally a reputation that's pretty above the line when it comes to these kind of lyrics. So it's interesting that McDonald's decided, hey, we're not going to buy any of this. We don't want anything to do with this guy. He's, well, see, he's I, you no know, Snoop Dogg. You're missing the context here, Greg, because the uh, Sun-Times, which I know you don't bother to read, but it covers Chicago, unlike the Tribune. Uh, you know, there was a campaign on the south side by some churches which have taken out billboards demonizing, in the wake of the Imus scandal, the negative lyrics in some hip-hop. And they're naming names. They're naming artists. Snoop Dogg, a couple of other people. And... They named Twista, which I think is kind of an unfair shot because he is not the dirtiest of rappers, and his whole thing is that he's the, the fastest rapper. You know, he claims to have won records for doing it, and, and I think he was in the Guinness Book of World Records, but he got bounced out. Anyway, Twista's not, you know, the most foul mouth rapper by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he was particularly upset about this because not only was he going to change the lyrics, which he sometimes does in front of all ages crowds, he was going to have a school choir come out and sing the song Hope, and he says now McDonald's is going to have to tell those kids they can't perform. That is the Isley Brothers fighting the power in the 60s, and now Ronald Isley's record company wants his fans to fight the power and petition the White House to keep Ron Isley out of jail. The singer who was battling kidney cancer was convicted of five counts of tax evasion, one count of failing to file a tax return in 2005, and now on Tuesday, August 7th, he is about to serve a three-year federal sentence for the crime. Uh, Meanwhile, Def Jam, his label, is asking fans to petition the White House asking for a Scooter Libby bailout at the last minute here. <laughs> Basically, a commutation of a sentence. There's concern that uh, due to a variety of health issues without proper care, Mr. Isley's health could decline further, and there's genuine concern as to whether he could survive a lengthy incarceration. This makes no sense to me. You know what I mean? In a universe where Scooter Libby is pardoned by the President of the United States, the IRS, yes, Ron Isley should have to pay his taxes just like I should, and I will say to the IRS, I do. But, but you know, I mean, what good does putting a 64-year-old sick man in yeah, jail for three years? I mean, send him out on tour, make him play community centers and raise money or, or awareness for the, the public. I mean, how does he pay his taxes when he's sitting in jail? Yeah, which he said he's willing to do. He, he wants to go out and, and, and do some uh, touring of the air bases in, in Iraq, and he's perfectly willing to do some community service, but uh, we'll see if it pays off. But... If, if Paris Hilton gets away with 20 days in jail, you know, in a country club, then Ron Ron Isley should not have to go away for three years when he's sick, 64, and one of the greatest American musical treasures.
That is a song, Presence of the Lord, that uh, Blind Faith recorded in 1969 and broke up soon afterward. Eric Clapton basically leaving the tour to go on tour with uh, Delaney and Bonnie and uh, leaving the band high and dry, basically saying, I don't want any more to do with these guys. That was a super group that was formed in the 60s in the wake of Cream breaking up, Clapton forming uh, Blind Faith with Steve Winwood and Jack Bruce and then quickly breaking it up. Well, those guys have made amends, at least Winwood and Clapton have, and they performed at the Crossroads Festival outside of Chicago last weekend. It was a historic event. Seeing Winwood and Clapton on stage together for the first time basically in 40 years was, was quite an event. Uh, performing Blind Faith songs in, in tremendous versions, Presence of the Lord, Can't Find My Way Home. Uh, Winwood doing a solo version of uh, some traffic songs, including uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy. That was an event uh, that a lot of people paid to see. Sold-out show. Then you've got Robbie Robertson making a rare concert appearance, Jim, the leader of the band, has really not played live much since The Last Waltz in 1976. This was his way of returning the favor because Clapton played in The Last Waltz in 76, now Robertson making a rare concert appearance. (laughs) It took about 30 years to get there. Uh, So... History was being made on the stage here, as well as a moving testimonial from B.B. King, the patriarch of this uh, armada of blues guitarists that were were brought out uh, over the weekend. And here's B.B. making a uh, statement in the middle of his set during the Crossroads Festival. So I say to all of you, may I live forever, but may you live forever and when they lay me out to rest as I mentioned I'm 81 now when they lay me out to rest may the last voices I hear be yours B.B. King, Jim, is is not going anywhere I mean he's still on tour but I think he recognized the sort of uh, the huge public profile of this moment. He's a former DJ. He's a great entertainer. He yeah. knows drama when he when he sees it. He happen. sure does. I mean, there was four million DVDs sold of the last Crossroads Festival uh, in 2004. A lot of people are going to see this moment. They were watching it on MSN.com. There was 20, 27, 28,000 people in attendance. There was a lot of DVDs going to be sold. I think this was BB's way of saying, hey, I'm passing the torch. I'm moving, you know, I, I'm, I'm moving on yeah, to the next world sooner goodbye. or later. And it was a moving moment. It was a, it was a powerful moment. People felt like they were watching a little piece of history. For Clapton, you know what? We have talked long and hard about Clapton being so disappointing for so long after well, that yeah, great run know, of records he made in the, in the 60s and early 70s. Let me in- inject a bit of cynicism here. I mean, we had a copy editor's paper who was eager to cover this. I was happy to cede it to him because if I don't ever have to see John Mayer play again, you know, <laughs> it, that's fine with me. There was a lot of uh, really second, third tier stuff padding out the bill and then some great moments, right? Once again, Clapton, though, is bringing out people, uh, you know, some, some of the legends, Hubert Sumlin, B.B. King, right? And he's paying homage to the blues. This is a benefit, and yeah. and the money from this DVD is going to go to a benefit. What is he benefiting? It's not Music Cares, the Grammy People's Organization that helps indigent musicians with health care. It's not the Blues Foundation. It's his rehab center in Antigua. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Here's an event on the south side of Chicago. How many south side Chicagoans are going to go to Antigua to clean up the rehab? <laughs> I'm not even sure Lindsay Lohan could afford to go to Clapton's resort rehab center. And then there's the problem of he played cocaine at that concert, as he often does. Years ago, he was shilling for a beer company. This is all after having come out from rehab. He seems to see no 
connection here. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the concert for Bangladesh. You know, some somebody says, hey, let's just throw a concert and let's see if we can help people. And <laughs> it, it's so poorly executed in a lot of ways. You wonder who exactly is going to benefit from this. It's, it's a very obscure group that Clapton has, has raised to the level of calling together some of his favorite allies to play a weekend concert for 90 bucks for people. That's that's asking a lot. But I mean, people same- in New Orleans still need help. Eric, <laughs> if you want a long list, I'm sure we could provide one for people that need help a little quicker than celebrities going to dry out in Antigua. Yeah. The, on a musical level, though, I, the, the point about Clapton is that he is playing with more passion than I've seen him in quite a long time, mainly because he's got this young kid in his band, Derek Trucks, who's also in the Allman Brothers, Basically, not letting Clapton coast. Between Derek Trucks on guitar and Steve Jordan on drums, these guys were pushing Clapton harder than I've seen him push in uh, many a long year. And it was worth it just to see Clapton finally engaged with something. In terms of the event being a, a charity event, Jim, I agree with you. It's, it, it's a little bit far-fetched. Why come to Chicago? Why not do something that would benefit, say, the indigent blues musicians in Chicago? There's a number of them. They, they could use some help. But in terms of a musical event, uh, there was some history made. I think, again, you've got a potentially best-selling DVD on our hands here when it comes out in the fall. Greg, let's talk about something that was good at the fest, though, to go out here uh, before we come back with the effigies. Jeff Beck is somebody I really wanted to see. You, he blew you away, didn't he? Yeah, Jim, absolutely. Beck stole the show, as far as I'm concerned, with a version of a Beatles song, A Day in the Life. Um, he's recorded it, but I've never seen him actually do it live. And, and to see him replicate those melodies and those orchestrations with just his fingers and those six strings was pretty amazing to see. Here's a guy who doesn't really use any effects on his no. guitar. It's just the touch of his fingers on the strings and that whammy bar. And it, it's amazing to see what he can do. Jeff Beck uh, doing A Day in the Life on Sound Opinions. That's a little Jeff Beck from the Crossroads Fest in Chicago, coming soon to a DVD. And coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to have an interview and a live performance from legendary Chicago punks, The Effigies.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Night Train by the Chicago punk band The Effigies from their new album, Reside. Greg, their first record in 21 years. Now, you and I are fans of The Effigies from the indie rock 80s when they were one of the bands that really put Chicago on the map on the national scene and paved the way for alternative. A lot of people to make a lot more money with a lot inferior noise uh, 15 years later. Effigies broke ground. That's not why they're here. They're here because we're excited about this new album. We're here live in the studio with the Effigies, John Kesdy, Robert McNaughton, Steve Economou, and Paul Zamost. Welcome, guys. I'm glad to have you here. Thanks. Hi. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. Despite the lingering fondness from our adolescence, Greg and me, <laughs> having grown up with you guys and, and being a big part of that Chicago scene, I was seeing you in New York when you would come out and play places like Maxwell's and CBGB, and you blew me away. Uh, we wouldn't have you on here today if you weren't as good in 2007 as when I left off in 87 or 88. Or na- when did they 86, break up? 86. Uh, Man, the last time we had a, an example like this, I think, was Mission to Burma. We, we had them in here last year, and they were extraordinary and coming back and making a new album that was every bit as good as as where they'd left off 20 years before. And you guys have done the same thing. Was the weight of history <laughs> weighing upon you? It's like, we're the effigies, you know. The, the people that know about us, there's not a lot of them, but the people that do, we got to not suck. I mean, that had to be weighing on that you. That was exactly the philosophy. It's just our, our intent was we, have to, we, we can come back, but we got to do it right. And if we weren't going to do it right, we weren't going to come back. Now, we're talking about the band in the present tense. They're back out playing live. Uh, They've got a terrific new record out called Reside. But uh, for a lot of people out there listening, who are the effigies? What do they mean? Why why do you guys have them on this show? Let me take it from my perspective, Jim, as a uh, a Chicagoan who uh, cut my teeth on the local scene here in the early 80s. There was no punk rock scene in Chicago uh, in circa 1980. Uh, there was a punk rock scene in New York City that everybody talks about all the time, CBGB yeah. scene. In L.A., you had the back black flags and the social distortions and uh, bad religions who were cropping up there. Chicago was a little later in the game. And then these guys and a couple of other bands came along. I really see the Effigies, though, as the pioneering punk rock band in Chicago, the first band that really started making records and going out and playing shows. Let's take it back to that era, guys, first of all. What was that like circa 79, 80 and basically doing everything yourself. <laughs> it was hard. It, it sucked. There was no PA systems. Uh, we were treated as a novelty. There was a time in Kansas where they just threw that PA at us and said, you guys are punk rock, figure it out. <laughs> Set it up <laughs> yourself. <Yeah. laughs> but what, what, how were you perceived when you would hit the road and go either to a place like Kansas or a place like New York City? Well, again, it's a Chicago who, Chicago what. There's nothing to precede us, so we just basically have to cut our own path, and we did. And... and Understand there was a lot of support within the Chicago, the small Chicago punk scene. I mean, it was us, Raygon, Albini, 
and a couple of other bands. Everybody chipped in. Everybody strike under. Everybody pitched in. Everybody helped out. We had one PA, which was Jeff from Naked Raygun's PA, which kind of made the rounds. He was doing sound for all the gigs. And that was it. So everybody was really tight, and everybody helped out. So we yeah. just forged ahead, got our van, and hit the road. And it, and it was kind of a community action uh, service, too, when it came to putting out the records, right? I mean, totally. legit yes. record companies, quote-unquote, weren't going to put out punk records out of Chicago. You guys had to do that yourself as well. We did, and we got a lot of help, and for which we're still grateful. I mean, I think we cut our first record on a budget of maybe $200. I mean, people, <laughs> people just really helped, and it just and Tim did Powell it. was a big help back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The engineer who's been making records forever in Chicago. Yeah, and he basically did the most for all those bands back then. He There's a lot of credit that he never got noted for. When you started going out in the road, um, was there a sense of a circuit at all, or were you kind of aware of what was going on in L.A. and New York, and, and did you sort of oh, sense definitely. a competition uh, being judged against the standards? Well, they're, they're pretty good, but they're not as good as you know the Ramones no. or as good as Social Distortion. I thought or whatever. we were always accepted better out of town. We were, yeah. Maybe that was the advantage of not having anything come before us. To, to true, I mean, right? People just kind of accepted there, us there for was, what we were. There wasn't really any. I don't think any uh, competition between, like, say, us and Black Flag. We stayed with them. They stayed with us when they came. And like, we had a was, sound was, that wasn't yeah. imitating anybody. We had and our it, own sound. And people forget this is all pre-internet. So we we had there were these books that the managers kept where they'd have names of all the people we could stay with. And somebody would stay at somebody else's house, and we just sit down and we just copy the books. And this is like where we're going right. to stay the next town. How very, do we, very how do we find the punk clubs in the other towns? We drive around until we saw a punk and then ask them where it was. Because <laughs> we never had like yeah. addresses. It was like above the record store. And yeah. it, took, it took me three tours before I even slept in a motel room. Because I mean, we'd either stay at people's houses or sleep in the van and drive all night. There was that sense of community. And it was also a, a kind of Kerouac ideal, wasn't it, John? I mean, it was. you know, you crossed America and you'd pull up into Madison and there was somebody who did a college radio show and there was somebody who did a fanzine and there was a guy who sort of had the VFW club going on. And when his band came to your town, you'd put him up. It was a. I think Michael Azarod did a good job of capturing that in that that book. This band could be your life. Right. Not to get ideal idealistic about it, but you know that's something. It's an experience that Fallout Boy, despite its sales of four million pop punk records, has never had. And I think they missed something by not having that. You know what? I wouldn't change. I wouldn't change anything. I mean, there were times where I had to live on very little money, and we 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 weren't happy at the time. But in retrospect, I mean, it's good, they were good days. A lot mm. of a lot of. Very decent people. And I'll tell you, back then, I thrived on music. That's all I lived for. I basically, everything was sacrificed for the band. Everything was sacrificed for music. I educated myself on everything I could get my hands on because I was so into it, right? Right. So, for instance, the L.A. scene, vastly different from even the San Francisco scene. But, like, I read Slash Magazine religiously. I thought that was one of the best magazines ever come out in the United States. And... You know, all the Danger House bands, for example, mm-hmm. they were great. And I liked them all. They're all vastly different styles. Quite a few of whom, by the way, a lot of a lot of those bands probably wouldn't even qualify as, as punk these days. I mean, yeah. that's how tribalistic and sort of um, narrow the, the, the genre has become. That they, they're, they're, there's no more tolerance for all this different, this great different kind of music. Well, Perubu. Right. Who's going to call Perubu punk now? Yeah, they, anything that's they vaguely were. arty or vaguely yeah. psychedelic or garage, you know, yeah. it's all sliced and diced. What do, what do you think punk rock is today, John? Very, very fast metal. I mean, that's, mm. you know. I, I, I think punk rock has got, got a very uh, West Coast influence. It's got like kind of a whiny. The, the Green Day and all <laughs> the their green, copies. Yeah, right, yeah. those kind of sounds. You know, but what, what I think people forget, there's been some revisionism here, too, because historically people forget. I mean, hardcore now is not a term of derision, which is the way it 
initially started. Remember, the mm. hardcore was these are the guys who don't get it because we've already moved on from punk. They're the hardcore who are like staying behind and, and continuing. And then it, be- it kind of flowered. It became its own type of music. And later on, the guys that didn't get it made it into something huge. And that's where yeah. we are now. But in a way, it's very formalistic. It's, it has a definite type of music. It's a type of beat. And you just can't deviate from it lest you, you know, bring the wrath of all the magazines down on you mm. and say, well, they're not really punk enough or whatever. I'd say I'd kill for some of the bands that I thought weren't punk enough back then. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the jam. They were never punk enough, you know, but. Right. Okay. Perfect. Example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've got the Evogies live in the studio here with uh, instruments in hand. What are we going to hear, guys? Hazmat.
<laughs> Effigies, Hazmat. What a treat it is having you guys in the studio. That's from the new album, Reside. I gotta ask you, John Kesdi, lyrics in this record uh, from the governor. I'm old enough, I've been around, know how they run this state and town. Uh, it harkens back to a song you wrote when you were in your early 20s with the band. We'll be here tomorrow. Uh, I think even then you were taking a long view. This was not music being made by kids for kids, but something that uh, maybe could stand the test of time. And it seems like still to this day you're addressing stuff that's... You're not talking about being 15 and jumping around in a mosh pit. You're talking about being an adult, and, and, and it's still yet this forceful music. So it seems like there was always that sense of durability and the long view uh, with a band songwriting. You know, i got to take my cues from bands I liked, because, I mean, the things I always admired about bands, well, look, you can listen to a British band, yet they're singing about something that I care about. This is universal. It's, it's timeless in the sense that it should apply now, 10 years, 20 years from now. And um, ultimately, what's been interesting about our own set was, did it stand the test of time? And the old material did. I mean, we, we winnowed some of it, you know, but it was a lot of it's still good. And the stuff that we play live from the old set, from the old albums, is what we've decided has withstood the test of time. The topics are the same, though. I mean, everything we talked about, I think, in the first few records, just about everything is on this record. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's a little bit more matured, maybe. It's, I've got a different perspective because I'm a little bit older, but all the topics are the same. Mm-hmm. Well, there was always that. I think the thing that I uh, related to, Greg, growing up in Jersey City and in the shadow of Manhattan, you know, these were urban songs. These were songs about the tough life in the city, not glorifying it, but but in a very real sense, like the best of the clash. I mean, we don't have to dole here, but we have welfare and unemployment. You, and we have corruption. <laughs> and we have corruption. Boy, yes, do we, we have do. corruption. Yeah. Now, you all grew up to have interesting day jobs. We should talk a little bit about this. Mr. Kesdy, you are... With the state's attorney's office, right? No, actually, uh, I'm with another office, and I got to be careful about what I say here. But it's uh, I am I am a state prosecutor, and mm-hmm. uh, this is what I've been doing for the last 16 years. So law enforcement, and 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 being you know inside the machine in a way where where you've spent uh, 30 years of your life almost railing against the machine, stepping right. on people. But you know this was kind of interesting because when I graduated from law school, I mean. I, Frankly, many people go to law school just to make money, and that's fine. But, I mean, that's their primary motive. That wasn't my primary motive. But what was interesting was the people that wanted to make money kind of justified it. And I'd had these conversations with people. They say, well, you know, I think you can reform the system from within, which is all a little bit Pollyannish. Is that, is that the word I'm looking for mm-hmm. here? A little bit naive. And in retrospect, they lasted in their jobs about two years. I like what I do. You know, it's got an interesting set of stories that come with it every day. Mm. And I like what I do. I've never had any question about what I do. Morally, this is the easiest job in the world because it is of its nature. And it's just, yeah. I wouldn't do anything if I didn't think that, it was, that I was doing right. The laws are on the books, and if people break them. Yeah, and you know what? It, it's also, ultimately, what some music stands for is making a better world. If you believe the truth of whatever the music speaks about, that makes the world a more enlightened place. And ultimately, like I believe, it's like, you know, lift the rock up and you know you shed a little little bit of light on it everybody would be better off because we see everything i like that idea mm-hmm. and in a way that's what i do because it's like i'm down in the muck every day and this is i like that because in a way i'm trying to i'm trying to make make things right you know yeah yeah what what do you other guys do uh advertise i've been doing it for the past 15 years recording you know radio and tv mm-hmm. spots basically that's yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah and steve uh i'm involved in architecture and building I've had about 50 jobs. That's, pa- so. That's Paul, Paul yeah, on base. Paul, Paul on uh, base. Last year, was, I was driving a cab, which was one of the 
most eye-opening experiences ever. I mean, you talk about dealing with humanity yeah. on every level. In there's, Chicago, there's no humanity out yeah. there. <laughs> but the stories he, he had to tell. I, I bet those I, are great stories. I can't say any right now, but right, I'm back in construction management right now. I think there should be an effigies reality show. Yeah, right. and they should each have a camera following one of you around. Yeah. I'll go back into camp oh, for yeah, the rest of camp. How about another song, guys? Sure. This is a song off the very, very first record, which was a five-track EP. This is the one that cost less than two hundred dollars. <laughs> Very good. Early Effigies, Mob Clash. If anybody's interested in Early Effigies, Remains Non-Viewable remains, I think, one of the great documents of early 80s punk. Uh, sure. You can't get much better than that in Mob Clash from that particular record. The um, overview on Touch and Go. Probably the irony, you guys recorded that entire first five-track EP for 
200 bucks. They're probably selling now vinyl copies on eBay for 200 yeah, bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about that. <laughs> we got to say goodbye to you guys, but it's been a, a complete honor to have you. John Kesdy, Steve Economy, Paul Zamost, and Robert McNaughton. Uh, boy, what a treat. Thank you. Here. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank we, you very we much. We do it again in 20 years, and it'll still be great. <laughs> How much time we got left here? <laughs> yeah, there That is Vintage Effigies, body bag from the early 80s when they were one of the best punk bands out of Chicago, and they still are. If you want to hear more live music from Effigies, go to the website at soundopinions.org. In a minute, we're going to be back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new album by Chicago hip-hop artist Common. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, that is a track called The People, which is a single from the seventh album by rapper Common. The record's called Finding Forever. Common's been a guest on the show. We've talked about him in the past. He's a long-running artist, veteran rapper in an art form that has about a 15-minute attention span. Common's getting old. You know, he's 35 now, his seventh record. This is what he calls the second cycle of his career. He reached a pinnacle the first time in 2000 with Like Water for Chocolate, had that huge hit, The Light. Kind of fell off after his next album. People didn't know if he was still going to be relevant as a musician, especially because he was busy with a lot of other things. In the last couple of years, he's written two children's books. He started a designer hat company to cover the fact that he's losing his hair. He wears these very stylish caps. <laughs> he's appeared in three films that are going to open in the next six months, which are all major productions. He has a lot of things going on besides music. Music still matters to him most, however. Kanye West produced B for him. Kanye was inspired by Common coming up from the south side of Chicago, repaid the favor by crafting this record, and really making Common relevant again in 2005, introducing him to a whole new audience. What does he do for an encore? Well, they're back together again, along with a few 
guest producers, but mainly it's Kanye West and Common together again on an album called Finding Forever, which is coming out this week. Let's play a track here that features an un- unlikely collaboration with another artist who's been on Sound Opinions, the English singer and firebrand Lily Allen and Common. The song is called Driving Me Wild on Sound Opinions. Today show, be on the treadmill, uh, like, okay, go. Had a body, a uh, body that you can't pay for. That means she had some D's on her, but they weren't fake, though. Had a drive, room, a drive for Rodeo. She spent pesos on those labels. Spent class at the gym, strip tees on the pole. She was so obsessed with her body and clothes. To every party she goes, trying hard to be chose. They say it's hard for a pimp, but extra hard for these Reading us and people mad, trying to get these scoops. Chasing the actor for a Bentley coupe. Then came the pumps off, thinking she number one when she was just a jump off. Doing all she can for a man and a baby. Driving herself crazy like the astronaut lady. Common with Lily Allen on a song called Driving Me Wild, a song about a desperate social climber who's on that treadmill like OK Go. Common will sprinkle his albums full of clever pop cultural references. He is one of the smartest, most inventive lyricists out there. His subject matter, as with that song, Driving Me Wild, the black working class, the blue collar people who are out there trying to make a better life for themselves. You hear a lot of songs about ghetto life. And you hear a lot of songs about the guys driving that Bentley coup that the woman wants and driving me wild yeah. but can't get. Common is addressing that middle class, much in the tradition of Curtis Mayfield, the great Chicago soul singer of the 60s, and people like Gil Scott Heron in the 70s, talking about everyday lives. With Kanye West on the B album in 2005, he made just about a perfect, fat-free hip-hop album. 11 songs, no skits. No filler, very few guests. Paired back down to the basics. The formula is very much the same on this record. Common and Kanye are trying to make albums beginning to end, classic albums in the tradition of the jazz and R&B artists that Common grew up admiring. There's a lot of live performances on this record. These are first-class players, many of them in Common's touring band. No, it's exciting. Common's gearing up to go out with the live band again, and and he does that better than almost anybody in hip-hop. You know, Greg, he is dismissed cavalierly by a lot of hip-hop fans as a backpack rapper. He's a preachy hippie. He's a goody two-shoes. I think that, uh, you know, taking these acting roles, which ironically all find him playing gangsters. I mean, Ice-T becomes an actor, the guy who wrote Cop Killer, and he plays cops all the time. <laughs> Common, the least gangster rapper in hip-hop, he is now playing a gangster in all mm-hmm. these movies. He gets outside of himself, and he plays a lot of different roles on this album, and it makes it interesting. He's playing a uh, cavalier, heartbreaking cad who steps all over a woman's heart on a couple of songs. He's playing a tougher thug on a couple of songs. We heard in Driving Me Wild, where he's remarking on a woman's chest size, which is a very uncommon-like thing to do. He respects women. He sings a lot about spirituality and the power of the feminine. But he's playing this role, and that enables him to take a crack, and yet there are lines he won't cross. So when it comes to, say, hoes, he intentionally leaves that out of the rhyme. You fill in the blank. You know what that word is, and it completes the rhyme, and you're thinking about what the character's saying. But then also you step back and you say, 
Why did Common leave that out? And it continues that debate we've been talking about so much on Sound Opinions as as a main thrust of hip-hop in 2007, the power of words reminding us this is a guy in the old school tradition who believes that the words he uses matter. His words have never been better. I think Kanye intentionally paying tribute to Jay Dilla, the guy who crafted some of Common's biggest hits, including The Light, who died uh, a year or so ago. This guy was a friend of theirs and a hero of theirs. Kanye stepped out of the Kanye mold, much more spare and stripped back. I think this is a great album, definitely on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, buy it album. I like this record a lot, Jim. I think he's going to get docked some points because it, it, it contains fewer surprises than B. And album number two is definitely going to pale by comparison. It's going to, okay, you guys have done this, but you know what? More of a very good thing is not a bad thing. I mean, No, not it, when it's this it's good. It's still a very solid record. I think if you're looking for mellow, melodic, jazz-flavored hip-hop with very smart lyricism, this is the go-to guy right now, and, and it's a buy-it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Whenever possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a turn and pop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Mr. Cott, it's your turn. What do you got for us? Thank you, Jim. Effigy's got me all excited uh, thinking about uh, one of the great periods of music history, the Chicago punk rock scene of of the early 80s. And I'm going to focus on Naked Ray Gun because in many ways they were the band, more so than the Effigies, who broke out of Chicago, Mm -hmm. uh, toured nationwide, and really made a name for not only themselves but for the city, uh, creating and establishing a distinctive Chicago sound. These guys came out there with their combat boots and their buzz cuts, and I mean, they were plumbers. They were blue-collar guys, and they went on on that stage and they were going to war. Their subject matter... Very much, as as you can tell from the name Naked Reagan, they were mm-hmm. talking a lot about the Reagan years uh, in, in this country. In the song that I'm going to play, you get three very terse verses, three snapshots of their outrage about a country where they talk about the home of the brave. What does that mean in a country that once persecuted the weavers? What what have we done in this country to live up to the expectations that our ancestors who came from overseas to this country, thinking the home of the brave, the home of this promise, what has it become? And it's amazing to hear how prescient some of these songs are. They were talking about conflict in a way, saying, uh, you know, we're out here in this desert fighting Arabs. How often do we have to do this? How long are we going to keep doing this? Why are we doing this? That song Rat Patrol could have been written yesterday by any great punk band, just as Effigy's Body Bag could have. I mean, it's amazing, and it's kind of sad how little things have changed in 25 years. It really is amazing. One of of the great political bands of their time, but also the, you know, how moving these songs are. When you listen to this song that I'm going to play, there's not, not only rage there, but there's a moving sense of something has been lost, and we wish we could get it back. Jeff Pizzotti, one of the great commanding vocalists of that era, the rhythm set fantastic, of course, but I think the key to this band, John Haggerty, is guitar playing. To my mind, that man's tone defined Chicago punk rock, and it's the very—it's the thing that you hear first on this record, and the anticipation just—the hairs on the back of your neck just stand up when you hear that guitar. It's uh, John Haggerty, Jeff Pizzotti, Naked Raygun, Home of the Brave on Sound Opinions.
That is Home of the Brave from Naked Reagan, my Desert Island Jukebox pick. If you've got a comment on that song or anything else we played on today's show, go to soundopinions.org and uh, give us a comment. Give us a phone call at 1-888-859-1800. And while you're on our website, uh, do us a favor and fill out the survey. It'll help us out a lot. Next week, Greg, we've got the Besnard Lakes coming in for another performance and chat. Fantastic sounding band. They uh, blew us away when they recorded here. This week's performance by the Effigies was recorded by Mary Gaffney, Sarah Toulouse, and Liz Bustamante. And as always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace crew of Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with Chuck Lee, the intern, helping us out this summer, and our executive producer, fearless leader, and a man who has never been accused of being a backpack rapper, although he does live on the south side, Tori Southside Malatia. What's up, Shouty? I just had to come. Yeah. Might have something little you and me. Open up the door and you will see. I just had to come. Yeah, call you. If it's cool, girl, I'm coming through. I got a couple things that we can do. I just on Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, my name's Dan. I live in Lombard, Illinois. And I was going to call you earlier this week to ask you why you weren't reviewing Ben Weasel's amazing new album. And fortunately for me, I was listening to the show today, and you did review it. So now I get to call you and, and say thanks for reviewing the album. Makes you think you've got the right It's a wonderful piece of music that I think more people should be exposed to. Hey guys, uh, name is Jonathan. Enjoy the show. Although uh, on today's show you were talking about 50 Cent and how you think that he's uh, really shouldn't complain about much because he's only cashing in on an image that he created. And I would have to say I disagree with you on that point because I think that he does write about things that have happened in his life, his real life. You know, these aren't things that he made up to make money. So I think that that was a little unfair. Thanks. Hi, my name is Cindy Pittington. I'm from Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. I did listen to your show, and I found it mediocre, annoying, forgettable, droning. Most of it was like Chinese water torture. Please make it stop. What, what's the deal with the punk rock thing? Okay, it was back in the 70s. Um, everybody thinks they're cool if they are sort of punk rockish or something. I'm just so sick to death of this crap. I sort of like Dad's going to kill me, and Grinder Man, they're okay. I mean, it's just, I'm so tired of like, oh, you don't know about this band, so therefore I'm, I'm cooler than you, smug crap, okay? Play music that's good. Put some music on that people actually like, that sounds good, that stirs your soul. It has nothing to do with your intellect. Thank you. Hi, this is Troy from 
Nashville, and uh, I just wanted to comment on your your comments on the Grinderman album. It truly is an excellent album. I think you guys really nailed it. Uh, but from your show, it sounds like you might not have known that Grinderman actually just played Chicago last week. Uh, the only other American uh, date that they set so far, besides the New York show they did with the White Stripes. I drove all the way up from Nashville to see it, and it was absolutely incredible. You can imagine seeing Grinderman in an 1,100-capacity venue was just astounding. They did the entire Grinderman album, and then they did a set of Bad Seat songs. And a truly, truly great uh, show. Uh, but I listen every week to your show. Really great stuff. Thanks. I think I hear a baby cry Thought let you gather As she passed by Hi, this is Jason from New Rochelle, New York. I'm a fan of the show. I listen every week, and I uh, normally have a lot of fun disagreeing with you as much as I enjoy agreeing with you. And I just wanted to say that uh, while I think you're usually right about musicals, you should always make an exception for Hedwig and the Angry Inch because the soundtrack is terrific, and the lyrics are great, the music is great. It spans genres from glam to uh, Beatles-esque pop to proto-punk, and uh, if you haven't heard it, you should definitely uh, listen to it and watch the movie. They're both terrific. Thank you. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.